Part Two, Chapter Eight of Life and Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Peter. Life and Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part Two, Chapter Eight Intolerance. The Griffith lot was at 4500 Sunset Boulevard, on the edge of Hollywood, then a residential suburb, named for one of the earliest homes there. Hollywood residents observed with curiosity, but with no special alarm, the interesting picture-making plants that were appearing here and there in their neighborhood. California has a taste for publicity. Ladies and gentlemen, since there seems to be nothing further to be said for the dear departed, I should be glad to make a few remarks about California. That Griffith, on the very edge of Hollywood, had made the great picture then sweeping the country, was something on which to make a few remarks, though it is unlikely that even the most sanguine residents guessed that, within a comparatively brief time, their little suburb would become the center of one of the world's richest industries, a collection of amazing architectural construction, a strange, irrational region in and about whose environs frail cities and quaint villages, fair palaces and weird ships and oceans, would appear and vanish beyond the dreams of all the fairylands of time and change, that with these things would assemble an exhibit of feminine loveliness and masculine perfection, of human freaks and human vanities, such as probably no other planet could show. The change began quickly enough now. There was money to be made in Hollywood not only by producers, but by actors. On Broadway, men and women with lean parts, or no parts at all, turned their eyes westward. The exodus set in. The word Hollywood began to be passed about like some magic bauble, a talisman. Once more, California held out to men and women a lure of gold. The little group of players on Sunset Boulevard hardly knew what to make of the first incursion of real actors that swept in upon them. They had two ideas about it. They wondered if they would be able to keep their jobs, and if so, would they learn how to act? They realized presently that it made very little difference to them. They did keep their jobs, and they did not learn how to act, not in the stage way. It was the newcomers who had to learn, if they stayed. Most of them did stay, adapted themselves. Producers with new, big undertakings were all about. Griffith himself, returning from first showings of the birth, began on what promised to be a still more important, more expensive picture. It started as rather a small venture, with May Marsh and Bobby Harron in the leading parts. It was to be called The Mother and the Law, based upon a famous murder case wherein an innocent man, through intolerance, man's inhumanity to man, was brought to the foot of the scaffold. Lillian was not to have a part in this new play. For one thing, she was working in another picture, as Annie in Enoch Arden, one of the best of her early films, and in Richard Harding Davis's story of Captain Macklin. And then, Griffith perhaps did not think it wise to push her forward too fast. But one night, after a day of hard rehearsal, he picked up a copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, and his eye caught. Endlessly rocks the cradle, 
uniter of here and hereafter. He saw a picture, a girl, Lillian, endlessly rocking the cradle of humanity, binding the ages together, ages of human intolerance. Feverishly, he mapped out a new scenario, far-reaching, comprehensive, covering the great episodes of intolerance, back through the religious wars, with the massacre of St. Bartholomew, through the crucifixion, back to the days of Belshazzar, tyrant of Babylon. Beginning with the modern story, he would lead it through episodes of tyranny and bloodshed, down to the blind cruelty and intolerance of today. And always, between, that young mother, endlessly rocking the cradle of the child who, in every age, must pay the price. The preparations for intolerance, as the new production was now called, were architecturally far more pretentious and costly than those for the birth of a nation, or for any spectacle play up to that time. Gigantic plaster elephants rose a hundred feet above the street level. The towering buildings of Babylon stretched, a profile of ancient Asia, across the sky. Nubian lions roared, a motley assemblage of Persians, Egyptians, Babylonians, priests, dancing girls, charioteers, and fifty-seven other varieties, gathered for rehearsal, says Griffith's biographer. The luncheon hour on location composed one of the most picturesque sights ever witnessed by human eyes. At times there were as many as fifteen thousand men, women, and children scattered about the various lots during the noon hour. Thousands of horses and sheep grazed along the green enclosures, their shaking heads mingling with the flashing swords and helmets of the fighting men. When the great mob scenes were being photographed, it seemed as though the entire population of Los Angeles had come out to Griffith's place to take part in the various pageants and mighty rushing armies. Actors from other studios, many of them prominent stars, joined in the scenes. The writer assures us that in spite of the fierce conflicts waged on the parapets and walls and towers, only sixty-seven players were injured, and these but slightly. Also that a modern field hospital, with surgeons, nurses, and ambulances, was maintained. Actors whose names are well known, or have since become so, first appeared on the screen in Intolerance. Count Eric von Stroheim, Frank Bennett, Tolly Marshall, Constance Talmadge, Constance was an extra, used at first for rehearsal, but presently, in the mountain girl who worshipped Balshazar from afar, Griffith could see only Constance, so gave her the part. Griffith had money to work with now, and spent it like Balshazar himself. Intolerance required a year and a half to make, and an expenditure of nearly two million dollars. Some of the items are impressive. A jeweled costume for the princess beloved cost seven thousand dollars. The dancing girls at the feast of Belshazzar, twenty thousand. A good deal more than they ever cost that early Belshazzar, even in his palmiest days. But of course these were war prices. Intolerance was shown for the first time at the Liberty Theatre, New York, September 6th, 1916. Its magnificence impressed the public. What wouldn't Griffith do next? On the night of April 6, 1917, Griffith personally presented Intolerance at the Drury Lane Theatre, London. On that day, the United States entered the World War. End of Part 2, Chapter 8